Good morning. Isn't it wonderful that we have God's word and we can learn from it? I love the song there, of the new song there about reading it every day. That's important. Do you know that? And it's not for the goal of just reading it through. And it's not for the goal of just checking it off. And in fact, it's not only for the goal of learning something new. Because sometimes you might read in your Bible and may not learn something new. But you can be reminded of something important. And always be looking, even if it's not new, for something that can help you in that very day. But today, we're going to turn to some passages. And I think a lot of you, maybe not a lot of you, but some of you are going to learn something new today. Because we're going to go into some parts of history that you know what? Almost all of the Bible story books I have at home and I have a big collection of them, skip it. Don't you love it when they do that? Nope. Nope. That's one reason why even we can't just rely on Bible story books. We need to keep the complete record of God's word. And it's very important that we learn from it. And not just reading through one place. Today, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 8. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 8. But you know something about 2 Kings chapter 8? It doesn't give us the whole story. In fact, you will miss very important details about the history recorded in 2 Kings 8 if you don't also read 2 Chronicles 21. And so, considering the fact that we have parallel passages, I have a harmony for you. And Shamar has those back there. And um, this is a new one. Now, you had one before that was back in 1 Kings, and we haven't needed one for some time. Come on, Shamar, come on, pass those out here. Um, we haven't needed it for some time because the first seven chapters of 1 Kings... That's the only record we have. We don't have any other record. And, but now, as we come to chapter 8, we need a harmony again to help us. It's not that we need it, but it will help us to piece everything together. To see what's going on in 1 Kings and to see what's going on as recorded in 2 Chronicles. And this harmony will put them side by side and in sequence to each other so we can get the big picture. There's actually a lot of details, important details, that you would miss if you only read the record in 1 Kings or only in 2 Chronicles. So today, we're going to go back and forth. So you can follow along in 1 Kings chapter 8 and flip back and forth between there and 2 Chronicles, but you can also keep the harmony handy and you can follow along there. And I hope it will be a help to you. And I hope that you'll hold on to this because it's actually 48 pages of harmony. And we're going to come back to this repeatedly as we continue our study all the way through chapter 17. So we've got about 10 chapters of history harmonized between the two books where we can see them side by side. And I hope that this will be a help to us as we go forth and studying these chapters. All right? Well, let's, before we dig in here, let's pray. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, indeed, it is a lamp to our feet. And today, as we look back to a historical account, may we learn from it. May we be reminded of the importance to day by day look to you and trust in you. We need your help. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Be with me as I speak. Help me to be clear, concise. And Lord, I pray that we all today might not only learn, but may we be in our hearts drawn closer to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. And we find Elisha. And Elisha goes to Damascus. Now, do you know where Damascus is? Well, today we're going to be learning about some different important events and, um, and different places. And I'd like to start off by showing you here a map. I'm sorry the stars don't show up real clear, but can you see the three red stars? Do you see them? The one up in the top, kind of in the middle, and then on the bottom. Damascus is up in Syria. Damascus is up in Syria. That's where King Ben-Hadad's capital is. All right? So we're going to learn today about King Ben-Hadad in Damascus of Syria. Then we're going to learn about a king and prophets in Samaria in the nation of Israel. And his name happens to be Joram. And then we're going to learn about another king whose name is Joram. Same name. He goes back and forth between Joram and Joram. And, but they're, they're, they're the same name, but they're different kings. You've got to pay attention as you're reading the accounts to keep them straight. There's a Joram in Israel and Samaria, and there's a Joram in Judah of Jerusalem. Here we have three cities, three kingdoms, and three kings. And we also have some prophets. You all remember Elijah, right? You guys remember Elijah? Now, Elijah, we haven't heard about Elijah for a long time, haven't we? In fact, in the history, seven years have gone by. And Elisha was translated, he was caught up to heaven. Gone. Nobody's seen Elijah or heard from him in seven years. But you know, before we learn about 2 Kings chapter 8, we have to go back in time and remind ourselves of some information about Elijah. Do you remember when Elijah was afraid of Queen Jezebel and he ran away from her and he ran all the way to Mount Horeb? Do you remember that? How many of you remember that? Oh, good. And while he was there, he, he met with God, that still small voice in the cave. And God sent him on an errand. Now, you are there in 2 Kings chapter 8, but there's some important information back in 2 Kings chapter 19. I'm sorry, not 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. 
For God told Elijah to go, return thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's up there in Syria. And when thou comest, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. So Elijah, Elijah is supposed to do this. And Jehu is to be anointed, the son of Nimshai. He shall be anointed to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat, of Abel Melaka, shalt thou appoint to be prophet in thy room. And then God made a prophecy as to what would happen. God said, and it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Mm. Not a very good or exciting prophecy. Well, we've learned about Elisha. Elisha, you remember, Elijah cast his mantle upon him and he appointed him as the prophet in his stead. But you know, there's no record of Elijah ever anointing Haziel or anointing Jehu. Now, it's possible that he did. There's just no record of it. But what we're going to learn about today, especially with Haziel, is that Elisha is going to anoint him. Is this for the second time? Did he do it? Or did he just pass the job on to him? I don't know. I don't know. Considering the fact that God told him to go straight up to the wilderness of Damascus implies that he may have done it, Elijah may have done it, but there's no record of it. But we know today that Elisha is going to do it. All right? So now we've got Elijah and we've got Elisha. And they have these ministries to these kings and to different people. Now, Elijah, why don't you just sit down for a little while? Because we're going to come back to you. There's some important things about Elijah that's going to come up. But right now, as we come here to 2 Kings 8 and verse 7, Elijah's gone. And he's been gone for at least seven years. All right? But we have Elisha. Now, is there someone who'd like to volunteer to be Ben-Hadad, king of Syria? Who wants to volunteer to be Ben-Hadad, king of Syria? No, no volunteers? Mr. Fleming, you come on up here. You can be Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. Now, I didn't tell you anything about Ben-Hadad yet, did I? Nope. Well, you're king. You know that much, right? But you need to go lay down over there on the floor. You're sick. He's sick. And he is miserable. He's a miserable king. Sick, 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 sick. Now, let's talk about something. Hey, Ben-Hadad. Do you like Elisha? It's not in your script. <laughs> do you think, do you think, you all think about it. Does Ben-Hadad like Elisha? No. Let's review a little bit of history between Ben-Hadad and Elisha. Just not long ago, he used to send raiding parties into Israel. And these raiding parties would come in and ransack their towns and their villages and steal their stuff and steal the people. But there was a time in which 
Elisha was telling the king of Israel all of his plans. He couldn't do anything. In fact, he couldn't make plans in his bedchamber, in his bedroom, without Elisha knowing it. He didn't like Elisha. And you remember, he sent a band of soldiers to take you, didn't he? Remember that at Dothan? The soldiers came to Dothan to arrest Elisha. And the plan was to kill him. Now, we don't have time to review the entire story, but you remember that Elisha was spared of them, had the opportunity to slaughter his entire army, but instead he fed them and he sent them back to Samaria to Ben-Hadad the king. Now, do you think that now everything's great between Elisha and Ben-Hadad? Yes or no? Oh, no. No, you're right. Because then, when this happened, instead of sending little bands into Israel, he assembled his entire army, and he marched on Samaria, besieged Samaria. And you remember then, God brought a judgment upon Samaria as there was a famine, and people were starving in that city. And it was actually the prophecy of Elisha that was fulfilled in the Syrians fleeing for their lives because they thought that Israel had hired foreign nations to come and save them. But instead, it was an act of God. Maybe a little bit of a glimpse they got of what Elisha's servants saw at Dothan, of the armies of the Lord. They were terrified and they fled. No, Ben-Hadad does not like Elisha. But there's another contact that Ben-Hadad has had with Elisha. Do you remember one of Ben-Hadad's generals' names? Who remembers one of his generals? Anybody remember? No, Elijah. Nathan, what was his name? Naaman, that's right. Well, remember Naaman, one of his generals, had leprosy. And in one of his raids, he had kidnapped an Israeli girl, made her the slave to his wife. And instead of being bitter, this little slave girl told her master's wife about this prophet Elisha and how Naaman being a leper and having a terrible disease could be healed by the man of God in Samaria. And so Naaman hears this. He goes to Ben-Hadad and he says to Ben-Hadad, let me go to Elisha. And so Ben-Hadad sends him, and I don't know when all this occurs, these different events occur, or this particular event occurs in the other events, but he sends Naaman to Elisha, and you remember Naaman is healed. And he comes back to Samaria, healed by who? Elisha, the hated enemy of, some, of, of Damascus, of Ben-Hadad of Syria. And I'm sure news spread of this. Now, you remember that Naaman had brought a great gift for you. Did you take that gift? No, he didn't. But who did take that gift? Gehazi took that gift. Now, it's interesting. Elisha refused the gift of Naaman, but then Gehazi, his servant, went and lied and used deception to get it for himself in jealousy. Gehazi was judged, but one of the terrible things about this is that Gehazi set a precedent and a misunderstanding of what faith is in the eyes of the Syrians. And so here, I do have any idea why you would come to Damascus. Why would Elisha come to Damascus? I mean, this guy hates him. 
The Syrians hate him. Nobody in Samaria except Naaman. Maybe you were coming to visit him. I don't know. Why is Elisha coming to Damascus? Perhaps he's coming because Elijah passed on to him a task that was unfinished relating anointing Haziel. And anointing Haziel to be king. Well, so what happens here? Well, where is Haziel? Haziel, come, come, come. Haziel. Do you know who Haziel is? Haziel is the servant of Ben-Hadad. He is very trusted, very high-ranking. He's, he's, the, he's the servant to Ben-Hadad. Oh, let, let's put it like this. There we go. So we have here Ben-Hadad the king, who is sick, sick, sick. And we have Haziel. Well, Elisha has come to town. And a messenger comes to Ben-Hadad and says to him, Oh, Ben-Hadad, the man of God has come hither. The man of God. And I wonder what Ben-Hadad was thinking. Perhaps he could heal me just like he healed Naaman, my general. And so he calls for Haziel and he gives the Haziel a job. Take, take a present in, in thine hand and go meet the man of God uh, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, shall I... Shall I recover of this disease? Take a present. Go to him. Now this present. It was just a teeny tiny little present. What would you send as a present? Well, remember, there were 10 changes of garments and 70 pounds of silver that Naaman brought to Elisha. Okay, remember that? 10 changes of garment and 75 pounds of silver. How big do you think this present was? Well, it tells us that, so Haziel went to meet him, and he took a present with him, even of every good thing of Damascus. All the good things in Damascus he took as a present to Elisha. Does that sound like a tiny present? Well, do you know what it took to get this to the king, to him? 40 camels burden. Just imagine that for a moment. Okay, we thought it was a big deal for Gehazi to carry back his loot. This present took 40 camels to carry. I wonder if this is again a piece of what was confusing why you refused the gift from Naaman. It's not about the gift. It's about faith. But the king of Syria, it's about the gift. Forty camels. That's a lot of camels. Don't worry, this is just on loop. So just keep going. But there's lots of camels. And so, 
You know, we just read this sometimes, and it says 40 camels and came and stood before him. Now, remember we talked earlier about Bible reading? Do you know how important it is for us sometimes to visualize things? Okay, we read this and we just picture, you know, Haziel comes marching right up to Elisha and says this and that, right? Well, not exactly. He comes with an entire entourage, an entire host of, host of camels full of treasures. And he comes to him and he says to him, Thy son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, hath sent me to thee, saying, Shall I recover of this disease? Go, say unto him, Thou mayest certainly recover, albeit the Lord hath showed me that he shall surely die. What? Go say to him, thou mayest certainly recover, albeit the Lord has shown me that he shall surely die. That's strange. But we'll come back to that. Because at the moment, Elisha falls apart. His countenance is steadfast till he was ashamed. And the man of God, he wept. And Haziel, he, he, he sees this and, and, and he says to him, Why weepeth, my Lord? Because I know the evil that thou wilt do unto the children of Israel. Their strongholds wilt thou set on fire. And the young men wilt thou slay with the sword and wilt dash their children and rip upon the women with child. But what? Is thy servant a dog that he should do this great thing? The Lord hath showed me that thou shalt be king over Syria. Haziel will be king. And the very thought of this caused Elisha to weep. I don't even want to read again what he said would happen. It's so horrible. And so, Haziel departed from Elisha. And he came to his master. What said Elisha to thee? He told me that thou shouldst surely recover. Hmm. Is that what Elisha said? Elisha said, Go say unto him, quote, Thou mayest certainly recover, albeit the Lord has showed me that he shall surely die. Why'd you leave the last part off? Do you have any ideas? Well, I have a question for you. Was Elisha telling Haziel to go lie 
to Ben-Hadad? I don't think so. I don't think so. Here was the news. Ben-Hadad, you'll recover, but you're also going to die. If we assume that Elisha did not lie, then you know what? Ben-Hadad did recover. Get up, Ben-Hadad. You're all better. Ben-Hadad, he recovered. Now, why do I say he recovered? Because Elisha said he would. And Elisha, when he says things like this, they come true. Because one of the qualifications of a prophet is that if you're a lying prophet, you're not a prophet. So he can't be a lying prophet. And so... He says he shall surely recover. So we therefore assume that Ben-Hadad recovered. And why did Haziel leave off the last part of the message? He shall surely die. Well, we won't act this out, but the reason is is because Haziel is going to assassinate his king the very next day. King Ben-Hadad gets better! Yay! Only to be murdered by the man who told him he would get better. And so Haziel reigned in the stead of Ben-Hadad. Don't forget about Haziel. We're going to come back to him and learn more about him and be reminded of the ear-tingling prophecy of Elisha. Take your harmony as we now go south. We have a change of kingdoms in Syria. And now we come to Judah. To Judah. Now, just in reviewing our timeline down in Judah, you remember we had Saul, David, Solomon, right? Then you remember that the kingdom was divided. And we have Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Notice the colors changing in the north. Notice the colors pretty solid in the south. The colors stand for a dynasty, the family that's ruling. Northern kingdom has many dynasties, kind of like what's going on in Syria. There's now been the Ben-Hadad dynasty, and now it's Wit and it's Haziel's dynasty. In the kingdom of the north, they've all been wicked. Omri was worse than all before him, the first green guy up there. Ahab, his son was worse than his father. It just was a disaster in the north. A disaster. Wickedness, idolatry, everything terrible. In the south, it's been a mix. Some of the kings have been good. Some of the kings have been bad. And some of the kings have been a lot like most people, good and bad. Some are believers and trusting in God. Some didn't at all. But we learn about Jehoshaphat. 
Do you guys remember Jehoshaphat? Now, you notice that little jagged line there in Jehoshaphat. Remember Asa? There's that little jagged line too. Asa, remember, in his latter years was diseased in his feet. And it's there. Jehoshaphat reigned as a kind of a co-regency. There was an overlap in them as the transition of power took place. The same thing took place on both sides of Jehoshaphat's reign. It's fascinating. We're not going to go into it in Bible hour. This is the time we are right now. But um, if you want to study it, and if you're, you're, you're fascinated with history like I am, you'll want to. Um, out there on the wall is that big long chart. And you see all those crisscross lines going between with the little references in them. Take some time and look at that. Because these timelines are not just made up artificial timelines. They are, have basis in scripture. And you want to know how these pieces fit together and all that overlapping is taking place and how the numbers and the years all connect together? Much of it is explained back on that chart. And in our library, we have the accompanying book, The Chronology of the Old Testament by Floyd Jones, where he goes into immense detail in explaining it. It's fascinating. It's very, 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 very fascinating. So if you're in at all curious, take some time to do it. Or if you want to be amazed at biblical history, which, by the way, is an apologetic. You know what an apologetic is? It's a defense of the truth and reality of Scripture. The Bible is reliable history, and those who attack it will use things that are supposed contradictions, or they'll say it's not real history. Well, if it wasn't real history, we wouldn't be able to make timelines like this. It wouldn't, it, I, 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 I got a book recently of Grimm's fairy tales. You know what? They're fairy tales. There's no tie of history to them. And it's not so with the word of God. It's real history. And so oftentimes, by taking the time as believers to study this, it causes us to marvel in the historicity of our Bible, but also is a very important piece of preparing us to answer those who would speak against the word of God. So these resources, we don't want to go into it this morning, um, I want to, but I'm refraining from going into it this morning. But I want to point you to this book and to that chart to help you and know how these things lay out. But we're going to look at Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat is here in Jerusalem. So we're going from Syria down to Jerusalem, to the kingdom of Judah. And it tells us that in the fifth year, of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being then king of Judah. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Here we've got two kings with the same name. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 16. We have Jehoshaphat transferring the kingdom to his son. Now, could I have King Jehoshaphat come on up here? King Jehoshaphat. Mr. Vanderwerf, you're King Jehoshaphat. And we have him as King of Judah. And you have sons, don't you? Yes, let's look here up on the screen. Here we have these three kingdoms. This was not, this is another kingdom besides Syria. We have Judah and Israel and Zidon. And on Judah, you see Asa, Jehoshaphat, and then we see his sons. Then we see Israel, Omar, Ahab, and then how they relate in Ahab, Mary, Jezebel. But we come down and see a little bit more of Jehoshaphat. We, we have these. So your eldest is Jehoram. Where's your eldest? 
hey, Nate, you're, the, you're, you're his eldest son. You come on up here and join your father, King Jehoshaphat. All right, but that's not the only son he has. So all your sons need to come on up here. All of King Jehoshaphat's sons need to come on up here. You guys can just line on up. But keep, keep, keep the eldest there right next to dad. All right? So you see these names up here. We have Jehoram, Azariah, Jael, Zechariah, Azariah, Mishael, and Shephathiah. All these guys. All right? All these sons. Here they are. Boy, look at this royal family. Think of all they could do in the kingdom. And Jehoshaphat knew that. Jehoshaphat knew that he had, you could say, he had some royalty here. And it tells us here that he makes his oldest son king. Well, he's still alive. Why would he make his oldest son king? Well, we might find out later. Oh, you know what? I don't think it was quite that king yet, so hang on just a minute. You don't want to wear it. Ah, we're going to put this one on you. There's the crowned prince. Oh, but we need to look up there at that chart again. Hmm. Who'd you, who'd you marry him to? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> he doesn't want to talk about it. Doesn't resemble his real wife. Is, <laughs> it says that he... Yeah, the daughter of Jezebel, Athaliah, Athaliah. Now, some of you know who Athaliah is, but it might be enough for you to know that she's the daughter of Jezebel. And a lot like her. A lot like her. So he marries his crowned prince to a princess of Israel the wicked nation of Israel. And then Jehoshaphat dies. But before he dies, it says that he had appointed his son as king and all of his other sons, his father gave them gifts of silver and of gold and of precious things with fenced cities in Judah. What that means is that he appointed his eldest as king over Judah, all Israel. And then he made you in charge. Maybe you were the, the general of Beersheba. I don't know. What town? All the fenced cities of Judah. The strongholds, the big cities. He made these guys like the mayors, the governors, over those different cities. Pointed them all, and he gave them riches. But he chose his eldest to be king. He was, and he did this because he was his firstborn. Just as a little side note here, birth orders carry some significance, but when it comes to things like this, be careful of just doing defaults in birth orders. You probably shouldn't have made your eldest the king. Just like you probably should. Not probably. You shouldn't have married him to Athaliah. So you die, Jehoshaphat. And guess who becomes king? Guess who becomes king? Jehoram, his eldest son. And it tells us that he was 32 years old when he began to reign. How old are you? 33. You're 33, all right? It's real close. So if you can imagine with me here, 
This family here is very similar in generation to Jehoshaphat's family. Very similar in generation to Jehoshaphat's family. And if we keep reading in 2 Chronicles, all see, or in, first, in 2 Kings, all seems great, doesn't it? Mm. But if you go over to 2 Chronicles, we find a sword. A sword in the hand of the king. And it tells us that when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself. Well, that makes sense. A king would strengthen himself and become great and strong over his kingdom. But he strengthened himself. And do you know what he did? He slew all his brethren with the sword. How do you think Jehoshaphat must have felt? But he was dead. Could you imagine that? I mean, could you imagine that? Just because you're his brother. All of them. Slaughtered. Oh, what an introduction to the next king. Oh. You're all dead. But no, not only them. He also slaughtered diverse also of the princes of Israel. Others. It says he was 30 and two years old when he began to reign and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked. He lived in the way of the kings of Israel. Speaking of the northern kingdom. Remember that, that the timeline? All the northern kingdom kings were bad, 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 bad. And in the south, and your dad, your dad was a believer. His father trusted God. But no, he doesn't follow in the way of his father. He follows in the way of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab. And then in 2 Chronicles 21, verse 6, don't miss this statement. For he had the daughter of Ahab to wife, and he wrought that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It is so very, 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 very important who you marry. It is inferred here in this passage that much of his wickedness was fed, encouraged by his wife. I love when Mr. Vanderwerf made the comment that she doesn't resemble this real guy's wife. Isn't that great? But Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, was his wife. And it's inferred here that she was a major encourager of his 
wickedness. And by the way, I have to wonder if this idea of slaughtering his brothers wasn't her idea. Keep it in mind, because when he dies, you know who becomes queen? She does, and she does it again. A wicked, wicked, wicked woman. Be careful who you marry. And at the same time, many of you here are already married. You're committed for life. Don't be like Athaliah. You'll say, I wouldn't be. Of course you wouldn't be. But not even in the littlest ways. As a husband, as a wife, be a blessing to your spouse. Encourage your spouse in godly things. Lift up one another. We have great, great influence in our relationships. And you might read this and you might say, ah, the Lord's going to do rid of this family. Oh, he's going to get rid of this family. Done with this dynasty. That blue up there is going to change colors. They're gone. Oh, please look with me at 2 Chronicles 21 and verse 7. How be it? You know what that word means? That means regardless of all the terrible things you've just read about this guy, even with all those terrible things, albeit, nonetheless, in spite of it, it doesn't change something very important. The Lord would not destroy the house of David. They deserved it, but the Lord would not destroy the house of David, the dynasty, the family of David. Why? Why? They deserved it. They deserved it. They deserved it. Why? Well, it tells us why. It's because of the covenant, the promise that he had made with David, and as he had promised to give him a light into his sons forever. In spite of this man's wickedness, because of the promises made to David years before, God leaves him. Even though he is actually trying to destroy the house of David, massacring his own family. And the princes very likely were other relatives, descendants of David. Oh, our God keeps his promises. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that something to rejoice in this morning? But it doesn't come without discipline. God did discipline. God did judge Judah. For it tells us that in his days, the Edomites revoked from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. You know, your father, Jehoshaphat, won against the Edomites. The Edomites had come up against Judah to fight against Judah. And you remember that Jehoshaphat went forth marching to war, singing. They didn't even have to draw their swords. All they did was sing as they marched forth to meet the Edomites, your father. They were singing praises to the Lord. And when they went forth to meet the Edomites, the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites all attacked each other. They were, they were a confederacy. Instead, they attacked each other and killed each other and massacred each other. 
so that when Jehoshaphat and his army showed up, all they did was collect the spoil, the riches, for three days. They didn't even have to draw their swords. So now the Edomites, at that time, were put under the dominion of Jehoshaphat. But they rebelled against that with him as king. And they make themselves a king. And so Jehoram, he goes forth with his princes and all his chariots with them. And he rose up, and do you think he sang praises to God? No, he trusted in his horses and his chariots and smote the Edomites which compassed him in and the captains of the chariots. And you might think, wait, 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 wait a minute. I, I thought, I, I, I thought, shouldn't he get judged? Shouldn't he lose? He doesn't have God on his side. He won. Now, I don't think you put the Edomites under your oppression. You didn't beat them like your father did because they still are trouble. But here, he won against them. And they had revolted under the hand of Judah. And it's here stated to this day. Second Chronicles was written much after Second Kings. It's a later, later record. And um, it wasn't complete. The Edomites still held, even though their main army was destroyed, they still held who they were. Obadiah is going to give some more information later relating to the Edomites. But also at the same time, not only the Edomites revolted, but also Limna, that was a city-state, revolted from under his hand. And why was this all? It tells us in 2 Chronicles. Because he had forsaken the God of his fathers. Well, about this time, something We have King Joram. You want to just come stand right over here. King Joram of Judah is the great king. Remember this guy? This guy's been in heaven for seven years. But seven years ago, before, before he was caught up to heaven, Elisha wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to him. Now, he wasn't king yet. Uh, he, he was, you, you were still in your 20s. But he writes a letter to him, not knowing any, or not maybe did know. Nobody knew he would do this. I mean, if Jehoshaphat knew he would do this, what, 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 what would happen? Or where has this letter been? Listen. Listen to this letter that Elijah wrote seven years before. Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, or in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but hast walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring, like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also hast slain thy brethren of, of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people, and thy children, and, they wa and thy wives, and all thy goods, and thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels, until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. Now, 
what I find incredible about this letter is that this letter was not written today. It was written seven years before it was delivered to him. Now, I've got a question. Where has this letter been? And was it seen by Elisha? Was it seen by Jehoshaphat? I mean, did you hear what was in this letter? There came here now a writing to King Joram. And listen again what it says. Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa your grandfather, king of Judah, but hast walked in the way of the kings of Israel, Ahab, and has made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring like to the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, that is going and like committing adultery and against God, their husband, to these idols of, of, of Ahab and Jezebel. Those are the whoredoms of the house of Ahab. And has slain thy brethren of thy father's house. That really makes me wonder, where's this letter been? I mean, was there, there was a written warning that this would happen. And by the way, they were better than him. Which were better than thyself. Behold, God says, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. Thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. Ugh. Do you know that this is a fulfillment of prophecy too? Deuteronomy 28. Remember, we've been there before. God spoke of, if you do not serve me, these plagues, these curses, these judgments will come upon you. Remember the enemy nations coming in and what happened to Syria, at, at Samaria? The famine in the city, even the cannibalism in the city. It was all warned, warned and prophesied that would happen if they would not follow God. And you know, as soon as we finish all of that, it's warned here. In Deuteronomy 28 and verse 58, and way back in the days of Moses, it says this, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then will the Lord make thy plagues wonderful. You think, how can a plague be wonderful? Well, to the scientist studying it, it might be wonderful. As long as he's not got it. Wonderful. Plagues you will wonder at. It doesn't mean you'll wonder and be happy about it. It means you'll wonder, how did this happen? How, where did this come from? This is unexplainable. This is amazing. This is weird. Plagues that are wonderful. 
and the plagues of thy seed, even with great plagues and of long continuance and sore sickness and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt that thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. They were warned. They were warned. They were warned. And now it happens. So we read this and our ears tingle. Now you know why it's not in the Bible storybooks. I wouldn't want to put this in a Bible storybook. But it's real life. And in fact, it's not even just strange, weird things from the past. We have the wickedness like this even in our modern era. Terrible things happen. And you think, well, it's not us. What's this all have to do with us? Well, my dear brothers and sisters, take heed lest we fall. These are extreme cases, but they started small. Let's not forget the admonition given to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy. Fear the glorious and fearful name of your God. Fear him. He is righteous and just. Yes, we've seen today here. We've seen judgment and we've seen promise and promise and judgment. You know, even in our own lives, we have promises as believers, don't we? But there are disciplines. Even in the New Testament, not just the Old Testament, speaks of those who are believers who sleep or dead because God is intervening. Let's take heed. Sin will carry us so much further than we want to go. Let us take heed. Let us beware. Our little sins may not be anything like this, but they're still a big deal. And the little sins become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Don't hide your sin. Confess your sins. And Jesus Christ says in 1 John 1, 9, he, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We have forgiveness. We have hope. So as we live our life, what way are we walking in? Are we walking in the way of our friends? Are we walking in the way of our parents? And that could be a good or a bad thing. Are, what way are we walking in? Whose way are we walking in? Let me tell you whose way to walk in. The way of the Holy Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit. Yield yourself. Let God control your life. Trust him and obey him. What hope we have in him. Great God, we give thanks to you this day for your word. May we learn from it and be encouraged. And Lord, I pray that we would forsake our ways that are our ways and ways that are unpleasing to you and walk in your ways for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.